0: Revelation chapter 3. Let's read it together. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life." I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the seven challenges every church faces. In the New Testament, we have Paul's letters to churches. We have the Apostle Peter's letters to churches. We have James's letter to Christians. And here in Revelation 2 and 3, we have Jesus' messages to His churches. And of course, we believe that all of the letters I just referenced from Paul and Peter and James, those are to the Word of God inspired by the Spirit. But these are unique. And at the end of each message, he showed us that he didn't intend for these messages to these churches in Revelation 2 and 3 to be only for those individual churches, but for all churches to hear the words of the risen Christ. And to learn from them. And so, Jesus' words in the text we just read, and as you've probably sensed through these past weeks as you've been here, these are hard words. They're heavy words. And especially this message to this church in Sardis. So, before we look more closely at this, I want to give a note ahead of time. Jesus is a spiritual doctor in this text. He, he's diagnosing the church, and then He hurts the church in order to heal The church, He calls his church to enter into a time of introspection. He wants them to see what he sees about themselves because going through the everyday rhythms of life, we often don't see reality in our own souls or even in the church that we're a part of. And then he gives warnings to his churches. And he wants this church to see that it's not alive. It's almost dead. But introspection is never the goal. Even though he's calling the church to introspection. He wants us to look inward at our lives and our church in order that we might look to him and then look ahead with fresh hope. So he's giving warnings to the churches. He's giving promises to the churches so that we are propelled forward in hope, in fresh faith, in fresh repentance, walking in newness of life. Now I say this because with texts like these, there's a danger in treading on a tender conscience. Maybe you hear Jesus' words to these churches and you think, I have all of these problems. I'm guilty of everything Jesus is saying. And maybe you've heard this and you you get scared of Jesus' warnings at the ends of these texts. These are eternal warnings and promises here. the, The weight of eternity resting upon them. Now, if that's you, I want to remind you of one main observation about these messages we've seen. Jesus does not assume that every church or every Christian is guilty of everything he's saying here. Every challenge he's addressing is a real challenge for every church and every Christian, but that doesn't mean that every church or every Christian is guilty of every challenge he's giving. Jesus is addressing different churches with different problems. With some churches, he has nothing negative to say. With other churches, even when he has negative things, he has other things to commend, and he even addresses different groups within churches. You've even maybe noticed that in the letter we just read, the message we just read, that he's addressing a church as a whole, but then there's a group within the church that's different than the rest, so there's different people that he's addressing even within. Some believers are faithful, and Jesus is happy with them. He's pleased with them. He doesn't want them to feel like they need to repent of everything he's saying here. But this takes personal wisdom because we have to be open to Jesus' correction In His words here. I mean, He may be waking you up to see the reality of your soul in a way that you have never seen before. He may be waking our church up to see who we are in a way that we haven't been able to see before. But we also need to know that we may identify personally or as a church with those who are mainly commended and not corrected. So I think of this like we're listening to Jesus giving his diagnosis to several different patients. Picture a doctor going down a line telling people what their problem is and what the way forward is for them. And he's saying to one person, here's your problem. Here's what you've been doing that has contributed to this problem, and that needs to stop right now. Now here's what you need to do moving forward. And now as you overhear what he's saying to each person, you might get freaked out because he just told one person, you know, you've been putting a lot of salt on your food and that needs to stop. You actually can't have any more or you'll die within a few years. And then you listen and you're thinking, is that, is that me too? Oh no. And then you think you're kind of wrapped up in that person's problem. And so we need to assess ourselves, but we need to also assume that we may not have the same sickness other people have. Now this gets tricky, if you have a sensitive conscience, because you will be prone to see the imperfections in yourself. And that's a gift of God's grace. But I think of those checklists to help self-diagnose, you know, the ones that are like, if you check four out of 10 of these, you probably need to go to the ER. You know, you probably need to see someone right away. And you read the list and you think, I have four. And then you read the list of a completely different problem. You think, I got four of those too. And then you read, you know, are you that kind of person? I mean, I can do this. Sometimes you read these lists and it's, you know, if you got four out of ten, you have a problem. And the first one is, are you, ever, are you tired sometimes, you know, during the days? Yeah. <laughs> do you ever get sad and you don't know why? Yeah. I mean, you're halfway there already, right? But on the other hand, I know some people that could check ten out of ten and think they don't have a problem, right? We read those lists. We have a problem. The doctor's telling us we have a problem, and we ignore it. We don't think it really applies to us. We think we're going to be just fine. And so do you see in a room like this, it's going to be, we're all over a spectrum. And I can't play Jesus here and tell you who you are. And so this takes us to all humbly opening ourselves up to the risen Christ and the Spirit's work in our hearts. Um, And I can't even say, hey, this church in Sardis here, that's not us. I may have an opinion about what I think, but I don't want to stand in the place of Jesus and uh, take off the edges of what he's saying to his churches because of what my perception is. I'm assuming my perception is not the same as Jesus' perception because he's the one saying here he knows the heart. I don't have eyes like flames of fire like he does, and he says he does, to see things. So we all just need to be open before him. And lean in and receive what he has to say to us as individuals, as small groups, as a church family, as a region. And remember, no matter what your problem is, the path to joy and peace is in every one of these messages. It's repent and trust Christ's promise afresh and step forward with great joy. He does not hurt so that we wallow in pain. He hurts to heal. And the way forward The way forward in repentance is this painful process on the way to great joy because we see ourselves clearly and we have a risen Christ who loves us, who died for us, whom we can walk forward in life with knowing that we have him as our friend and he forgives us if we come to him in faith. So each message, he's addressing a a unique challenge that faces each church. We've seen the challenge of becoming a loveless church, right, the spiritual danger of having doctrine without devotion. We've seen the challenge of being a persecuted church and the temptation to be fearful about suffering. We've seen the challenge of being a morally compromised church, of having our theology in order and yet compromising ethically in a myriad of ways in everyday life. And this morning, we see the challenge of becoming a dying church. In Jesus' message to this church at Sardis, he's addressing the danger of having a reputation without having reality. The danger of having a reputation for spirituality and Christian maturity without having the reality itself actually happening. In other words, this is the challenge of becoming a church that people within and without think is vibrant and alive and great. But it's actually about to be moved over to hospice. The key word of this message that Jesus gives that church is the word name. Jesus often uses one word in different ways in, in these messages. He was a poetic preacher. He has wordplay throughout all of these letters. In his message to this church, he, he plays with the idea of name or reputation. It's the same word in the original that's translated both ways in our text, reputation or name. We use the word name in the similar way today, right? Making a name for oneself is building a reputation. So having a good name or a good reputation, it does matter. What the world thinks of us as Christians matters. What the community thinks about Zionsville Fellowship matters. One of the requirements for being an elder, one of the qualifications is that you have a good reputation among those who aren't Christians. In the book of Acts, one of the times when the church was growing in health and in numbers was when it had a good reputation in the community and people esteemed them. But that wasn't universal or guaranteed, because many people also hated Christians at that same time. Jesus said, they, "Because they hated me, they'll hate you as well." The church in the first century was often rejected and persecuted. But this church in Sardis had a good reputation, and many churches have a good reputation, and that can be a fine thing. It can also be a spiritually dangerous thing for those who are in that church. What makes the difference is whether or not the reputation matches reality. So the key question for every church from this text and every Christian is this. Does your reputation match your reality? Does the way that, you, that people perceive you in your spirituality, does it match reality in the inner workings of your heart and your private life? Does the you that people think you are match the you that you really are? The church in Sardis was celebrated publicly, but it had become complacent and compromised spiritually. It looked alive, and it was dying. So, first, what are the symptoms of a dying church? Well, the doctor walks in, in verse 1, and he says, "...the words of him who has the seven spirits of God..." and the seven stars. Now, that's an unusual way to describe someone. But we remember that Jesus' description of Himself here is symbolic. So, what does it mean that He has the seven spirits of God? What are the seven spirits? Well, it seems like this is a symbolic way in the book of Revelation of referring to the Holy Spirit. And the number seven is symbolic in this book that's richly filled with symbolism. It's symbolic for fullness or Perfection. So, God, who created the world in seven days, rested on the seven days. It's a symbolic number of completion. So, Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit. And Revelation 5 6 describes Jesus symbolically as a lamb who has seven eyes, which are the Spirit's sent out into the world. So, there's a connection then between these seven spirits representing the Holy Spirit and Jesus' sight or perception of the world. Because Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit, he knows what's going on everywhere. He knows what's going on right here, right now, in this room, and what's going on in your mind and your soul every moment that you and I live. He sees everything. And he assesses every church. And we know this is in view because he says next that he also has the seven stars. It takes two steps to understand what this means. The first step is seeing that the seven stars represent seven angels. Jesus had the seven stars in the first chapter as well, and we learn that the seven stars represent angels. And the second step is recognizing that the the angel, uh, well, maybe backing up, there's seven angels that that are sent or commissioned to oversee each church, and we're not quite sure what that's all about because we don't read about that kind of thing much elsewhere in the Bible. Some think that the angel refers to the leadership or the teaching pastor, senior pastor of a church. Others think um, that it refers to a messenger to the church, think it's likely that it refers to an angel assigned to each local church. And so that's what the the stars are, and then Jesus says that these angels represent the church itself in a sense, because as He speaks to the angel of each church, He's speaking to the church. So in other words, Jesus is the one who has the Spirit and knows what's going on in every church, and He has the churches in His hands. He has authority over the churches. We're His church, and He knows what's going on, and He has a word for us. He has a word for every church. He cares for us. He loves us with all His heart. And he has hard words and hopeful words for his churches. He knew this church at Sardis. He had an opinion about them. Jesus has an opinion about you and me and how we're doing. But that's not good news for Sardis. Look with me at the next part of verse 1. He introduces the problem. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So they have a reputation, literally a name, They have made a name for themselves in the city, among the churches, they've made a name for themselves as the church that's alive, the church that's vibrant, the church that's the place to be. But Jesus has a different view. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we learn that God looks not on the external outward appearance as people do, but He looks on the heart. And we see Jesus has the same perception of His churches. He doesn't look at the outward appearance And what everyone surveyed says about the church, within or without, he looks on the heart, and he knows the heart of a church. And so, what does he, as the spiritual doctor, see when he runs the tests? What are the test results? He says, You're dead. Now, that sounds hopeless, but thankfully it's not completely dead. He says in the next verse that some things remain that are about to die. So, it seems like this church is laying out on the table of the office of Miracle Max. Remember the Princess Bride? (laughs) Miracle Max. uh, Wesley, his friends take him to the Miracle Max because they think he's dead, and Max says that he's only mostly dead. And there's a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead, because if you're mostly dead, that's slightly alive. So that's where hope comes. The surprising thing about this church, though, is not that it's mostly dead. It's that it thinks it's alive. It thinks it's just fine. And everyone else seems to as well. That's its reputation. It's what it's known for. Well, what would that mean? What would it look like? Well, they probably had a lot of the outward marks of a faithful church. Good doctrine. Good doctrine. Today, they would have a faithful statement of beliefs. They read and recommended faithful books. They didn't promote heresy. The sermons aligned with the Bible were from the Bible, Bible Bible-centered small groups and friendships. There's probably also a large number of people that are part of this church. Their meetings are full, maybe growing. That's often what gives the impression that a church is alive, lots of people and more people. It's growing. And there's probably a lot of great things going on. A lot of people serving, a lot of people singing maybe in in ways that are in culturally engaged and fitting ways. Maybe people just loved being there on Sundays at their meetings. Maybe they loved meeting in each other's homes and they had this sense of vibrant community together. What does a church look like that's alive today? Well, a lot of the same things that would have been in the first century and maybe some different standards as well. Some people think that a vibrant church is one that's really big with great music Some people think that a living church is one that's on a fast-growing church list. Some people think that a great church is where they're engaged in the community or where they're engaged in social justice issues and work. All of those can be great things, are good things, and they can give the appearance of being alive. But apparently, none of those things necessarily mean that a church is actually alive, In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, pastor in New England, wrote a book called The Religious Affections. I'd commend it to you. It's an excellent book. Uh, Don't give up if the reading's hard. Give it some time. You'll get used to it. Um, But he was assessing what was going on in his day of awakenings that were happening and revivals that were happening. A lot of people were critical about it, saying that it wasn't really the work of God. And other people just said, all of it's the work of God. And so he was trying to discern how can we tell? How can we tell if someone's actually converted? How can we tell if, if a revival is actually happening? In other words, how can we tell are there are signs of life? And for a lot of his book, he walks through sign after sign after sign that may be a great thing, but doesn't necessarily indicate real life because it can be mimicked by someone who doesn't have a new heart. Uh, a revival can be faked by Satan, stirring up all sorts of emotions. And so, he's trying to discern, here's the things that are good and fine, and we, we can celebrate if they're really a work of God, but they don't necessarily mean for sure that God is at work. And then he goes to certain signs that do indicate that there is real spiritual life. Similar, a similar thing is going on right here, and we can do that with this church of Sardis. We see four things that may be true of a church that looks like it's alive and they're good things, but is actually maybe dead. First, it may have a great reputation. This church was nearly dead, but it had the reputation of being alive. So a reputation for being vibrant and alive doesn't necessarily mean that a church can take confidence that it's not almost moving toward life support. Nobody was thinking this was a declining or decaying church. Nobody was thinking this church had a problem. It's the one that people thought of maybe as a model church. Maybe publishers, publishers were getting in touch with the pastoral leaders of the church for them to write books about what they're doing to help the other churches that don't seem to be as alive as them. Second, it may have many good works. It may be doing great things. Look at the second half of verse 2. He says, I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. He doesn't say that he can't find any works. They have plenty of good works. He just doesn't find them complete in the sight of God. Maybe they'd even be complete in the sight of other people. So, a dying or dead church can look very lively with service and social concern and community service. Third, it may have a great gospel-centered heritage. Maybe in its distant past or near past. Look at how verse 3 begins. Remember then what you received and heard. So, they received and heard something, and probably this refers to the gospel and the broader doctrines and traditions from the apostles. Paul spoke about delivering the gospel and traditions to churches. So, this church had a vibrant gospel-centered beginning. It received the gospel. It treasured and received traditions. So, a dying church may still have faithful doctrinal statements on file. Fourth, it may have some spiritual people there. Look at verse 4. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. So let's hold the soiled their garments for a moment here. This is at the very least indicating that there are some believers who are faithful there, who are walking faithfully with Jesus, and Jesus commends them indirectly here. So there's a remnant in the church that's spiritually vibrant. So you can actually point to people in the congregation who are Clearly, spiritually alive and walking with Christ. So, this church had all those things going for it a good reputation, good works, a gospel centered past, and it has some spiritually vibrant people. But even with those signs of health, it's nearly dead. Why? Well, Jesus points out a couple of indicators here. First, he finds their works incomplete. We just saw that at the end of verse 2 I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So their work may have seemed complete in the eyes of other church members. Their works may have seemed complete in the eyes of their community and in their own eyes. But Jesus says, in the sight of my God, in the sight of the Father, there's more to be done and you've leveled off and plateaued. It seems like maybe they're half-hearted, going through the motions, coasting, living off their past works and sincerity. They may have begun sincerely but are going through the motions. We know what that's like, don't we? To start something with passion and vigor and purpose, and then find ourselves coasting, and then be kind of woken up to ask the question, why am I even doing what I'm doing? And you realize that the initial motivation is long gone, and you're just doing it because you've been doing it. Churches can do that. Second, look down at verse 4 again. He says that they still have a few that have not soiled their garments which implies that the rest of the people had, which implies that that's a big problem in the church. The majority of the people, Jesus says, have soiled their garments. It's a symbol, and probably a symbol of moral compromise. As they live in their culture, they're starting to become like their culture in a way that they don't think Jesus cares about or sees or is bothered by, but he is. They're embracing the values of their city that are not the values of Christ. They're maybe making compromises in how they talk, what they do how they conduct business and what they value as entertainment. Third, it seems like there's a general problem of complacency. Jesus tells them that they need to wake up, which implies they're not alert. They're not awake. They're spiritually sluggish and sleepy. The attitude of the church was starting to reflect the historic attitude of the city. The history of Sardis was um, apparently not defeated or conquered in a traditional way. They didn't have a traditional war because the city was well protected. It had a fortress with cliffs that would need to get scaled. So, how was it defeated? Well, they felt pretty confident because they had cliffs that would need to get scaled. And they needed to be alert, but they weren't. And so their problem was a lack of watchfulness as a city historically. It was conquered twice because under the cover of darkness, the cliffs were scaled and they had surprise attacks. And so they were conquered because they stopped watching. They grew complacent. And now Jesus is saying to the church in that city that their situation is very much like what their city used to be like. An attitude that says everything's fine we're alive. Look at us. So those are the symptoms of a dying church. What's the remedy then? Second, then, the remedy for revival, and this comes in five commands, and these commands are not complicated, but they are crucial. This is sometimes how news comes to us when we're diagnosed with something, right? There's a new way forward, and it's usually not, I don't know if usually, but it's very often not that complicated. But it is hard Because it messes with our values and our desires and our habits. And in order to follow through, we have to have new convictions. We have to want it. We have to be willing for this to be a turning point in our lives. Same for a dying church. It's the same for any of us when we find ourselves in a season of sleepiness or sluggishness. And perhaps the Spirit is awakening you even this morning to that reality. Maybe you feel that way. This morning, you feel like people know you to be spiritually alive. You have known yourself to have a vibrancy, and you're wondering if that's there right now. You feel like you've drifted or you're cold. You're sensing that you're spiritually sleepy. So what do you do? Five steps from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, look at the first two words of verse 2. Very plainly, wake up. Like Sardis needed to hear when the enemy was about to scale the cliff, This church needs to wake up. This isn't the first time Jesus has said this kind of thing. In Matthew 24, uh, when he talked about the expectation of his coming, he said this to his disciples. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in the church at Thessalonica to stay awake, and not sleep as other, others do. So this is a spiritual wakefulness, a spiritual alertness, not a spiritual sluggishness. So if you've been apathetic toward Jesus recently, Jesus says to you this morning, wake up, sit up, lean in, shake off the sleep. Now how do we do this? Um, we can't wake ourselves up but it's, it's fascinating to think about how this phrase, wake up, works in ordinary life. Because when someone is falling asleep, maybe you're sitting in a class, or maybe Sunday morning, the person next to you is drifting. What, how do they wake up with your assistance? Well, it doesn't just happen. It happens as you use two words, and you say, wake up. Right? Or if someone's sleeping... And someone walks into the room and says, Wake up. The command itself brings with it the power to wake up. The the words themselves are not just sounds floating in the air, they're actually performative actions. They're things we, we do things with our words. When we say wake up, it has the power to wake people up. Now, this is a spiritual wakefulness. I can't wake you up by saying wake up spiritually. I can't speak to your soul in that way, but Jesus can. You remember perhaps when Jesus was at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus needed to get up. Lazarus needed to wake up from the dead. And how did it happen? Jesus gave him a command to do what he couldn't do on his own, but the command brought the power. He said, Lazarus, get up. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, wake up, right? And Lazarus got up because the Spirit is with Jesus' words to make it happen. So this morning, um, let's pray together that the Lord would wake up whoever needs to be woken up this morning, and that we would all be more spiritually alert than we were coming in this morning. And God can do that through this command right here. Second, look at what he says in verse 2 strengthen what remains and is about to die. So they've become weak, but they can grow strong again. But they need to notice what's weak in their lives and in their church. And then they need to know how to be strong again. So the church is like a fire that's been reduced to embers and they need to locate those embers and get some oxygen on them again, fan them into flame, add things to the fire. They need to let their faith in Christ express itself in the ways that are natural in everyday life to live lives of good works. Third, they're to remember the gospel and its implications for life. Look how he put it in verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. So I mentioned before this is probably referring to the gospel message and then other traditions and doctrines that went along with it. It's the gospel and its implications for life. So what does it mean to remember the gospel? Well, clearly they knew the gospel... They had already heard and received it. The word remember in the Bible is often a far more significant word than we often think about it being today. To remember is not just to recall something. It's to um, re-engage the reality of what you're remembering it's to reorient your heart and life around that reality again. It's to bring something to mind and put it back into life. It's to adjust our lives in light of what we remember. So at the heart of what this church needs is to get the gospel functionally central again. One of the most important steps in, in, in revival and renewal, personally or corporately, is getting the gospel itself to function again in our hearts and our lives and to guide us. So, what is this gospel that they receive that needs to function? Well, it's the news that before we trusted in Christ, we were dead spiritually, without a spiritual pulse. And Jesus came to die for us in our place for our sins. And then He rose again from the dead. And as He rises from the dead, He now, by His Spirit's power, brings us to faith and says, wake up, and we come alive. And we come alive, and the first breath we take is the breath of faith. We, we breathe in the gospel and breathe out uh, faith and repentance, and we walk in newness of life and walk with Him as our Lord and Savior. And He offers this grace to all who trust Him. This is the message that needed to get back at the center of their emotions and at the center of how they, why they did what they did again, remembering why they were doing the original works and then being spurred on to do them again. You remember Jesus said that, I haven't found your works complete. So there's a way in which we can get content in our Christian lives to have a level of service, a level of engagement, a level of spiritual growth, feel like we're doing okay, especially if it seems like we're doing better than some other people around us, and then feel like, okay, I'm settled and I'm fine. But if we have this gospel fueling us, this reality that Jesus is our risen king and our friend who died for us and loves us and he gave us his spirit to walk in newness of life, then we're gonna be propelled and impelled and compelled to go further, to keep doing more and never be content with plateauing and leveling off, but keep moving further and further ahead. And so the fourth step then is to keep this gospel. Look at the progression in verse three. Remember, and then what you received and heard, he then says, keep it. Hold fast to it. Don Carson has said, I've shared this before, that every church is one generation from denying the gospel and dying. That's a scary thought. Every church is just one generation away from dying. And its death is wrapped up in a failure to do what Jesus is calling this church to do. To remember and to keep the gospel and to hold fast to it. And that's the point of this text, so it's worth remembering. Um, Carson puts it this way. He said that one generation believes the gospel and celebrates the gospel. It's fueling their affections. They'll also see all these implications and entailments of the gospel in their life for good works and social care and, and love for their neighbor. And they'll see all of these implications for integrating faith and work in their workplace and how they live as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and friends. The next generation— assumes the gospel, still believes the gospel, but dislodges it from the center and instead puts in the center all those wonderful implications of the gospel, all those things that the gospel leads us to care about, that the love of Christ leads us to care about and love. And then the second generation after that, after they assume the gospel, uh, the next one believes the gospel. So, we have believed the gospel and assumes the gospel. The next generation denies the gospel And then all these good works or social concerns that we should do in light of the gospel and we must do in light of the gospel are now the only thing that matters, and they're unhinged from and unhitched from the gospel. So here's the concern. The church in Sardis was at stage two and didn't know it. They assumed the gospel. They had received it, and now they assumed it, and they were living off their reputation of the past, and they'd slipped away. And Jesus says, remember it, keep it, Put it back in the center. Hold fast to it. Guard it. Love it. And final step, repent. He says repent. Repent, To repent is to turn around, is to change your mind and heart and reorient your life in a new way. It's coming to God with open hands of faith, empty hands of faith, and saying, I'm sorry. I'm coming back to you. Will you please forgive me and empower me to live anew? And so he calls them to this, and he mentions this. Uh, In this church, there's also a faithful remnant in this church. Verse 4, you can look with me. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments. So there is a faithful group there. I've known people, I think of a couple guys I knew who were laboring at a church that had uh, long just assumed the gospel, living off fumes. Most of the people probably weren't actually believers there. Uh, and they were laboring there because it was their church and they had been there. And they were praying faithfully and earnestly and seeking to spread the gospel within that very church. And so, they're, they're like this faithful remnant at Sardis, laboring in the midst of a dying church, hopeful that the Lord can cause them to wake up. Now, there's a place to leave a church when the church has dead, when it's become not a true church. Uh, but a church like Sardis isn't dead, like, dead yet. And so, the call here in the case of those Christians is to keep laboring, keep praying, keep working, keep strengthening others, keep sharing the gospel, keep modeling this life for them. And so, Jesus' message ends like the rest. Promises to those who hold fast to Him, promises to those who conquer. He's actually giving a warning and a promise here. The warning is back at verse 3. Do you see it? If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So, He says, Similar things to these other churches in these chapters. He's probably referring to coming to this local church um, in judgment, in history, at a unique time. The judgment will be ending this church's life in some way. He'll close its doors. Sometimes you see a church close its doors. I mean, the stats, it's happening daily. Uh, And what this text gives us is a lens to interpret what's going on there. Sometimes what we're seeing is the Lord Jesus Christ coming and shutting that door for the last time. And he has done it. And so there's something to grieve about that because that church might have had this declining history. And in that moment, we should grieve. But we should also thank Jesus for not letting it continue to live and give false witness in a community to him. And so, and we just, at, very, at the very minimum, we recognize Jesus' authority to do that. And we trust him, he's doing his work. But what about the promises? Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So you see this emphasis on name again. You have a name. You've made a name for yourself, a reputation that's false, but there are some names there among you who are faithful and if you wake up, for all who do wake up, I will confess your name before my father and your name will never be erased from the book of life. That's, where, that's the kind of reputation that we want. That's the only reputation that matters ultimately, right, and forever. What Jesus says about our name, where He writes our name, what He thinks about us. And so the simple call to wake up, and Jesus will say to the Father on that last day, this one's mine. This one was awake. This one walked with me. Not perfectly, but this is one whom I've applied my blood to and covered with my blood and washed clean and clothed in white garments. And this one will walk with me forever. Because he's made, he, and she, he or she, this son or daughter, has been made worthy by my work on the cross for them, and then the Spirit empowering their lives. Philippians 1.6 says this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, which means that God is working in the lives of His people. We just sung this, He will hold me fast. He's working in the lives of His people. We have great hope that He who began the good work will complete it at the day of Christ. He will continue that good work in our lives. And so we're so grateful that God is working in us. And we must respond to that work by His own enabling power. So we pray and work to be a church that doesn't just have a reputation for being alive, but is alive. We don't want a reputation without reality. We want to be known as those who take Christ seriously. We want to be known as those who take joy not just in our building or budget or leaders or music or ministries, but in this, that we are loved by God and we know Him by His grace. When the disciples were sent out to do ministry in Jesus' earthly ministry and they came back right, celebrating all they were able to do, casting out demons in his name. Jesus said this, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Applied to this text, do not rejoice in your reputation of all the great things you do as a Christian or as a church. Don't rejoice in that. What do you rejoice in? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice that you write our names in heaven. We thank you that you write names in heaven before the foundation of the world. And we thank you that you hold fast to these names, to us. And we pray that you would make us a church that is alive, truly alive, walking in step with the Spirit, moment by moment, open to you. And we thank you that we have your Spirit's presence to do that. So please, Lord, would you use our feeble efforts and empower us in our actions and even in our motivations to do what what the risen Christ calls us to do here, to remember, to hold fast, to repent, and to walk in newness of life every day. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and receive the benediction. May the love of God our Father and the grace of the risen Lord Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this week and forever. Amen. Love you all. Go in peace.